Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 21st of April 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Right. Just, just in time delivery. Yes, just in time delivery. Let's get straight on with this then. Uh, the uh, anti-virals task, task force has been announced by the government and uh, I have to wonder why. Uh, because the vaccines are supposed to be providing everything that we need. Uh, but apparently the antivirals task force will identify treatments for UK patients who've been exposed to COVID-19 to stop the infection spreading and speed up recovery time. But I thought that's what the vaccine was supposed to do. Uh, the task force will search for the most promising novel antiviral medicines uh, that can be taken at home and support their development through clinical trials to ensure they can be rapidly rolled out to patients as early as the autumn. So, of course, uh, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin will not be part of those. Uh, the aim is to have at least two effective treatments this year, uh, either a tablet or a capsule form, uh, and the public can take uh, take it, sorry, that the public can take at home following a positive COVID-19 test or to exposure some with someone with the virus. So let's see what uh, Patrick Balance had to say. Antivirals in tablet form are another key tool for the response to task force will help ensure the most promising antivirals are available for deployment as quickly as possible. Um, so my question then uh, is, why are they doing this? Um, vaccines were supposed to prevent to, to do these kinds of things. Uh, why do we have to develop new antivirals? Um, one of the treatments that they announced last year, if you remember, uh, after the so-called hydroxychloroquine trials, was uh, dexamethasone. Um, and uh, well, what's that used for? Well, amongst other things, and thanks for the person who gave me the heads up on this this morning. Amongst other things, it uh, deals with drugs, drug hypersensitivity, so allergic reactions to drugs. Um, and one of the other things that can be used for is uh, low platelet levels, um, which of course is what's being blamed for uh, causing the uh, blood clots with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, so, uh, very strange, I think, that this is uh, this is going on, but uh, that's not the only thing that's happening today uh, because they've also announced a new global partnership to fight future pandemics. So we're going to have future pandemics and they have to be fought on a global basis. Um, so the government has, uh, via the G7, established uh, a new pandemic preparedness partnership, PPP, uh, to save lives from future diseases uh, and prevent other Another global pandemic, the PPP is going to advise the UK G7 presidency on how to meet the Prime Minister's ambition to, st to slash the time to develop and deploy high quality vaccines for new diseases from 300 to 100 days. Uh, and that's going to be backed uh, by additional funding to support CEPI's work uh, on global vaccine supply. Uh, and it's going to be chaired by the uh, Chief Scientific Advisor, Sir Patrick Valance, who we've just seen on screen. Um, so this is going to be a public-private partnership. It's going to bring together industry, uh, international organisations and leading experts. It's going to have an initial £16 million funding, uh, and that's going to fund global vaccine manufacturing capacity and critical research and development it, to rapidly respond to the threat of new strains, uh, supporting the development of new variant vaccines. And CEPI's work to coordinate research development and manufacturing of vaccines is going to aid efforts to have millions of doses of vaccine available for emergency use 100 days from a variant of concern being identified. Um, so uh, this is what Matt Hancock had to say. We want health security for all, working on international 
uh, leadership on clinical trials, action on antimicrobial resistance, and to embrace the vast opportunities in digital health we've seen come to the fore over the past year. That should make you, everybody feel very good. So who is on this? Uh, 20 members of the PPP, that includes the World Health Organization, uh, Vaccines Envoyer Andrew Whitty, uh, Professor of Medicine at Oxford University and member of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Scientific Advisory Committee, Sir John Bell, uh, Managing Director of the COVAX facility, Gavi, uh, and also the Chief Executive Officer for CEPI. Um, then there'll be industry members, which are going to include representation from uh, the, uh, well, there's going to be the head of the Glo Global Drug Development and Chief Medical Officer at Novartis. Uh, there's going to be the Executive Vice President for Biopharmaceuticals R&D at AstraZeneca, uh, the Chief Scientific Officer at Pfizer, uh, and the Chief Scientific Officer at Johnson & Johnson. I can't imagine what could possibly go wrong with that. Well, lots of things, actually. We could, we could probably do a programme on that. But wonderful new speak language there. We've got international leadership. We've got digital health. That's about fixing the bugs in the system, presumably, or maybe not. Yes. Um, so uh, let's welcome Alex Thompson to the programme. Alex, and uh, uh, you've got uh, one from the continent uh, with respect to uh, Pfizer. The Barcelona daily La Vanguardia, one of the big four Spanish newspapers, reports the contract signed uh, with the relevant commissioner of the EU last November uh, by Pfizer. So the headline says, El contrato con la Comisión Europea exime a Pfizer de las responsabilidades. So the contract signed between Pfizer and the European Commission uh, exonerates Pfizer from responsibilities. And the screenshot is not great, but let's go into the... Uh, uh, juice of the article as revealed by La Vanguardia by a leak of some kind. The documents have sensitive written on them, a sort of low-level EU classification used internally. And uh, the relevant section of the document from 20th of November 2020, uh, this is before, of course, uh, Pfizer had a, uh, any kind of uh, approval, let alone license, is the section 1.12 indemnification. And it says the commission on behalf of the participating member states declares that the use of vaccines produced under this agreement will happen under epidemic conditions requiring such use and that the administration of vaccines will therefore be conducted under the sole responsibility of the participating member states. Hence, here's the third party coming into the contract, the EU orders, each participating member state shall indemnify and hold harmless Pfizer, their affiliates, their subcontractors, licensors and sub-licensees, and officers, directors, employees, and other agents and representatives of each. Uh, pretty comprehensive indemnification going on there. La Vanguardia on the next slide also found out that the price was a bit over the odds. Uh, other sources have been reporting a $15 per shot price for um, Pfizer, but as of last November, that's the range that was being discussed in section 1.7 of the document, 15 uh, euros, 50 cents per dose, excluding value-added tax. Uh, but there's been some to do over the price there as well. But largely the indemnification, particularly because the EU, or the Commission in particular, its, its government, its civil service, is claiming the power by a, a unilateral contract with a, a pharmaceutical company to bind member states to indemnify the vaccines uh, manufacturer from harm. Can, Alex, can I just ask, um, just for viewers, expand a bit on indemnification. Why, what is it? Why would you want to do it? It's the civil law concept that you have uh, shot yourself in the foot before you go to court, effectively. If you go to court trying to sue anyone 
for uh, harming you, causing you injury, causing you loss uh, in any lawsuit and go to court and the other party can wave in front of the judge and jury, not that you get a jury in the continent, can wave in front of the court uh, an indemnification. Uh, that's you saying I sign away any right uh, to seek compensation afterwards. So the, the English legal phrase, it was clearly drafted by continentals looking at the comma rather than the decimal point in the prices, but it's being drafted in English, the international language of such business. Uh, the phrase used, borrowed from English and American common law, is indemnify and hold harmless. In other words, I waive all claims on behalf of those under me, those who put me, the government or the commission that the government's put together uh, in position, uh, those people have no rights. I've signed them away unilaterally. Uh, this is done now three tiers up because the, it's not even national governments. It's the, it's the commission ordering national governments while it signs a contract with Pfizer. Um, and uh, I was just wondering, Alex, because obviously at the beginning of this entire process, uh, as far as the EU member states were concerned, uh, they were running their vaccination programs on a national level. Um, that apparently, for whatever reason, didn't go so well. And uh, uh, there was some questions raised and a lot of to do about whether that should have been handled centrally at EU level. And then the, EU, the, the European Commission effectively took over that role. Um, and yet, does that, so would that agreement still apply under those circumstances that indemnity is happening at a, at a national level, even though the EU has effectively taken over control of the distribution and so on? Uh, as an interested layman, I would only venture so far as to say that it, it all hinges upon which court you go to. The European Court of Justice in Luxembourg, the EU's internal court, would always regard a contract uh, signed by the European Commission as taking precedence over any claims uh, of uh, or protestations of innocence by uh, or non-involvement by national governments. The ECJ would always seek to bind national governments that way. National courts, it depends very much on whether the doctrine in that member state is monist or dualist. In other words, have the judges been trained to bow down to European law above all, or have they, like the Germans and Italians, been told that we first need to look at the constitutionality uh, of what's been done above our heads at EU level? Uh, so there is still all to play for. People in the chat box are quite right that the best bet, as Rainer Fulmich is now quite repeatedly saying, is special courts and tribunals outside national or EU structures. Uh, Nuremberg too, for short. Yes, okay, well, uh, now of course, uh, vaccine hesitancy has been something the UK government has been particularly concerned about. Um, and so, uh, well, they ran an event uh, yesterday uh, in South America, uh, all about building vaccine confidence. So they are uh, have been encouraging countries in Latin America to uh, fight misinformation and build confidence around vaccines. Um, so the Government Communications Service International delivered a virtual seminar uh, to public officials uh, yesterday. Uh, and the uh, activity consisted of sharing UK government communication strategies and experiences around vaccines. And the aim was to help in improving government communications capability and building confidence about vaccine efficacy and fighting misinformation. So uh, the, the government propaganda machine uh, being exported uh, to other countries. It, it, it's, it's difficult to comment on it, Mike. The uh, audacity is just so incredible of the government. Uh, let's have a look at how uh, Boris and his team have been speaking to people in the UK about what's happening. We've got three short uh, video clips here, which were part of a briefing which I think took place yesterday. Big thanks to the UK Column viewer that drew our attention to this one. Um, brace yourselves. Let's see how it went. Edson's in life sciences and to give ever greater confidence to the people of this country that we continue on our path towards freedom. We've taken a big step again this month, reopening significant parts of our country and for many people 
this last week has brought the first glimmerings of a return to normality, having a pint, having a haircut, making that trip to the shops. Every day, science is helping us to get back towards normality. And I believe that antiviral treatments can play an important part. And if we keep going, follow the rules, remember hands, face, uh, space, fresh air, then we can keep each other safe and see through our roadmap to reclaim our lives in full. Thank you very much. I'm now going to hand over to Nikki. Thank you. Um, it's Dr Nikki Kanani. I'm a GP and medical director for primary care in the NHS in England. And since the last time I came to one of these briefings, I've been working with colleagues across the NHS to roll out the biggest vaccination programme in the NHS's history. I've been vaccinating at local vaccination services uh, alongside many of you, offering people second doses, vaccinating people in care homes, but also making sure that my patients can get the care that they need from the NHS when they need it. It was on the 8th of February when I was last on a podium a little bit like this uh, that uh, I was able to say that we were on track to meet our targets. And since then, the programme continues to go from strength to strength, with the NHS meeting our first two deadlines on, vaccination, on vaccinating the most at-risk people. The public response has been incredible, and I thank you if you've come forward for your first dose, and please continue to come forward when you're asked to, to have your second dose as well. Yesterday, the UK celebrated hitting the latest milestone of 10 million people being fully protected from the virus. So to put that into perspective, that's the equivalent of the entire population of Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool, Newcastle, Birmingham and Bristol combined, having complete protection against COVID-19. So we're making great strides, but this hasn't happened by accident. The success is down to the hard work of our staff, incredible planning and delivery. So I want to iterate my thanks to all of those uh, staff and volunteers, everyone involved in delivering our vaccination programme. And I want you also to make sure that you look after our staff at this really challenging time. I heard today that um, a group of people were protesting outside a mobile vaccination bus in Nottingham. I want to say now that we will not stand for it. It is of vital importance that you allow our colleagues to do the job that they need to do, that you allow them to save lives by vaccinating people. And as Prime Minister says, you allow our teams to get us back to the lives that we love and that we miss so much. I also said at this press conference two months ago that it wasn't too late to change your mind if you haven't yet come forward. That was true then and it's true now. Our offer is evergreen. If you've decided that you would like your vaccination and you're eligible, we have a vaccination for you. If you've had your first dose and you have your second dose booked in, please also be sure to get it. I have my second dose at the end of March and I can assure anyone watching or listening that it's safe. Uh, well, uh, Mike and Alex, I watched your faces while that clip was uh, running here in the studio and uh, I saw some interesting reactions. Just to summarise a few things. So Boris has told us that science can help us become free. We're not free at the moment, but maybe uh, if we adopt, ad adapt and adopt science, uh, we can become free. And then we've had the amazing uh, Nikki Kanani, who's been telling us that essentially the vaccine, quote, uh, gives us full protection, complete protection. 
Now, not even the vaccine companies themselves are claiming that. So there's no evidence for that to support that statement from her at all. Um, but notice the use of the, the words viral treatments. Right? Antiviral treatments. Antiviral yes. treatments, yeah. And evergreen. This is just going to continue to give as far as they're concerned. And uh, of course, if you dare stand up and challenge what the government is telling you, you protest, which is your perfectly legal right to do so, uh, then you're going to have Nikki wagging her finger at you and telling you that uh, we are not going to allow this. Let's see how the clip proceeded. And I echo the PM's reminder that we all need to keep following the national guidance to reduce transmission, hospital admissions and deaths. And we too in the NHS will keep our side of the bargain, looking after you whether you have COVID or non-COVID concerns. We want to make sure that nobody is left behind. So I want to urge everyone eligible to join the millions already vaccinated to protect yourselves and others. So if you're invited to get a vaccine, please come forward. If you're asked or have the symptoms to have a test, please come forward. And if you have, if you have other health concerns, please come forward. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nikki. Let's go to uh, questions from uh, the public first. Annette from Leicester. Oh, sorry, Nick, you're going to do the slides <laughs> first. The slides. Sorry, Lovely. let's go to the slides. Oh, oh dear. Uh, right, so astonishing uh, performance there by Boris Johnson. This, this is within the multi-million new media centre that the British government has set up in order that the Prime Minister can do sort of presidential addresses to the nations, uh, to the nation. So they couldn't get that display uh, right. Uh, but the critical interruption there came when a person had asked a question. It does appear on screen, but you do not hear the audio. That's not an edit from UK Column. That's in the raw video. Somebody asked a question about how many people are in hospital following a vaccination. So that is the question. Suddenly everything breaks down and there's chaos. Let's see how it proceeded. Uh, we are yet... Uh, able to give you uh, those data or indeed what that statistic would say if we were able uh, to give it to you, Annette. That's not because we want to, uh, to, to, to conceal anything from uh, people. We, I, we simply don't know, know that data. I, mean, I suspect the number is, is, is very small, but uh, if, in, if indeed there are any. But um, uh, Nikki, if you'd like to, yeah, to comment on absolutely. that. Absolutely. Thank you, Prime Minister. It's a really good question, Annette. Um, I think what's really key is that every week we publish data that looks at both uh, COVID statistics vaccination statistics and obviously any safety alerts as well um, so although they aren't triangulated every week those statistics are produced and we're able to look at those and understand what that means and how that influences the vaccine program thanks very much Annette and uh, I mean clearly people are going to uh, uh, unfortunately people will continue to uh, to die of uh, other causes, irrespective of whether or not they've had uh, a vaccination. But I think your, your point is a, is a good one. Uh, let's go to Marilyn from London. And um, uh, Marilyn's question is, once international travel resumes on May the 17th, how... Right, so you see the difference there. When the question was asked, how many people are now in hospital as a result of the vaccine, the whole procedure breaks down. You don't really see the question, although it is on a television monitor to the top left of your screen. If you freeze that little video clip, you will be able to see it. Uh, but the follow up question, which, of course, is nowhere near as serious that he reads out in full from the screen. 
So I find this remarkable, uh, remarkable breakdown in communications for the government. But of course, what they do not tell the public is what the real state of affairs is over vaccine serious effects, which are being reported in the MHRA yellow card data, but effectively hidden from the public. Um, just two points there, Brian. First of all, uh, Boris Johnson, clearly uncomfortable to be answering that question. He said that they don't have the data, but he would imagine uh, that there was very few or nobody. Um, this is very much similar to the response from Matt Hancock in Parliament uh, a week or two ago uh, when he was asked by two separate MPs how many people um, had died within three weeks of having received uh, their COVID vaccination. And yep. he was not able to answer those questions either, including a written question, a separate written question. But uh, Nikki, uh, in fact, I think she lied three times there, Brian. She uh, claimed complete protection uh, from the vaccine. Um, she said uh, that the NHS was providing full support to people with COVID and people with any other kind of uh, which medical, is clearly untrue. Which is absolutely untrue. Uh, and uh, then she uh, uh, she also attempted to say that the NHS and Public Health England and so on were gathering all this data, uh, but in fact they aren't gathering the data on who is, uh, or at least they're not publicising the data on who is having ending up in hospital with adverse reactions. So, so there were three separate instances there where it was absolutely clear she was... Uh, being less than truthful. Yeah, and of course the, the government is not investigating the yellow card data anyway. So such data that's collected about vaccine adverse reactions, there is no full and proper investigation by the MHRA or the government or the NHS into the causal links with vaccinations. So let's have a look at, or uh, uh, remind ourselves what Professor Jonathan Von Tam said a little while ago, a few weeks ago. He said that vaccine adverse effects are, are they just like paracetamol, apparently. So this is another deliberate attempt to mislead the public. And uh, it's an outrageous statement that he made there in the video clip. Uh, this is the lady speaking, Dr. Nikki Kanani. And you'll see that if you read this little CV on the NHS website, it's boasting that she's also involved with the King's Fund, the King's Fund General Advisory Council. She holds an MSc in healthcare commissioning, and with her sister, she co-founded STEM Sisters, a social enterprise supporting young people to study science. Well, they may be able to study science, but they can't get treatment in a hospital at the moment because young people and elderly people are being turned away, as we shall see later in today's news. So if you're not aware of it, I encourage people to go and research the King's Fund this is a very powerful lobbying group, of course, a charity, but actually what it is doing is steering um, health policy in UK, influencing people in government, and a lot of questions to be asked about how people appear, for example, on their general advisory council like Nikki, and indeed why these people, this is the board for a board of trustees from King's Fund, uh, we need to really ask who these people are and why they're given the power to interfere in NHS health policy since they're completely unaccountable to the public. Now, we're going to remind people that UK Column has been continually reporting the government's own statistics uh, about vaccine adverse reactions. We think this is a very important thing to do, so we encourage you to see the government's uh, statistics on the yellow card MHRA, sorry, yellow card um, 
uh, part of the website. Uh, we showed this on Monday. I'm going to show it again. This was the statistics for Pfizer. Total reactions, 132,528. And uh, deaths, 314. If we go to AstraZeneca, uh, 492,105 adverse reactions and 521 deaths. And uh, as you have discovered, Mike, the MRHA is, st is stating that drug and vaccine adverse reactions are significantly underreported. Let's prove that statement because here is the government's website saying it. Please help reverse the decline in reporting of suspected adverse drug reactions. Uh, there's a bit more there, which is saying it's estimated only 10% of serious reactions and between 2 and 4% of non-serious reactions are reporting. And yet we've just seen Boris and uh, Nikki Kanani uh, briefing the UK public and simply ignoring everything to do with these adverse effects. Mm. Is there any way we could explain the fact that they don't talk about these statistics, including hundreds of deaths? Uh, they must be uh, uncomfortable about them or something, because uh, if they were happy about what's going on, they would be discussing them openly, surely. One would have thought so. So let's just have a look at how the uh, press in UK is dealing with the vaccines. This is the Daily Mail. Uh, it's going back to the 15th of February. Why a few side effects after your COVID jab are actually a good thing? Well, presumably that's if you haven't died, but... Uh, that might be an inappropriate bit of black humour there. A study in December by Imperial College found that almost a third of UK adults had concerns about vaccine safety. That is absolutely right. They should have concerns. And then there's the twist in the, in the uh, article. Yet having these mild temporary side effects after the jab could be a good thing. So you have a clot or a heart attack or you die or you lose your sight. Um, that's all ignored. Uh, and uh, this is spun. Here's the mail again. Now, this is interesting because uh, Alex, the mail says here that the British government is to compensate people um, who suffer extreme COVID-19 vaccine side effects with payments up of up to 120,000. So presumably, if you die, you're not going to benefit from that money, but the family's going to get it. Yeah, but remember that there's still indemnity for the companies themselves because that money's coming out of the taxpayers' uh, funds. So that's not coming from Pfizer or AstraZeneca. Oh, of course, of course not, of course Mike. Not. Of course not. Yes. But the other thing is that people who have tried to get compensation under this scheme from the British government for other pharmaceutical products have had to fight for years and years and years before they've had any compensation. Uh, let's have a look at the mail here talking uh, back in December 2020, when a, a bout of shingles is a sign you've had silent COVID-19. Doctors report a rise in cases of the painful condition. It may have a connection to coronavirus. Well, shingles has come up again here. This is the mail reporting studies in, uh, connected with Israel. Uh, where there's been a sudden uh, increase in people with shingles. Uh, what's the Daily Mail advice, which is the final bullet point in the subheadline, uh, that people should get vaccinated against shingles because then they won't get a problem once they're vaccinated with COVID-19 vaccine. Good. So get the vaccines in. But he, he is the Express. The Express actually talking about Pfizer vaccine side effects. Six cases of shingles reported. Are you at risk? And this is dated um, April the 21st, 
2021. We're puzzled about that because if we check the MHRA yellow card data, uh, we've got uh, shingles effectively reported as herpes zoster here. That's the advice that we have been given. And look at the numbers, 378 cases. And if we look at the AstraZeneca, we're up to a massive 425. So somebody is not telling the truth. The statistics on the screen have come from the British government. Yet Boris Johnson and uh, the lovely GP uh, accompanying him on that brief do not want to tell the truth to the UK public. And uh, meanwhile, we've got terrible things happening in hospitals uh, where people are being prevented from seeing their elderly relatives. And uh, Alex, you picked up on this little video clip. Let's play it and then we can comment. He doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to do a COVID well, test. Well, do you want to get to the bottom? You want to do a test on him now to verify your information that you put down that you haven't got no right to put down because he hasn't got done a COVID test. So therefore, you've assumed he's got COVID. You want? Do you want him to have COVID? Is that what you want to do? It's just the, the symptoms of needing oxygen and oxygen dropping with. It's COPD. He's got that's, COPD. Yeah, but, it, yeah, but it, that's not necessary that he's going to need four liters to maintain his oxygen. Can you just take me to see my dad, please? Just want I'm to really see sorry him. Just want to make sure he's I'm all right. And now he's stressed. I'm not no, getting no, angry. Do you know what I mean? But I'm, I'm getting frustrated now because I think he told a load of bullshit. I'd like to come see my dad, please. Now, why are you standing there just like pretending no, no, you can't no, understand no, what I'm saying? You just said you walked from there to there to take me to see him, and then you stopped me and said, "Arm, arm, arm." You know, you just shut down on me. You just took me to go and see him, and then you're standing like you can't understand what I'm saying. Can you take me to see my dad, please? No, no. What? I might as well talk to the wall, wouldn't I? I speak to you, and you just put your head down on the floor like you're not responding to what I'm saying. Why are you ignoring me? Can you take me to see my dad, please? So, so can you put that in a bay instead of... He's in a ward on his own. He's on, he's on his own in a ward. So can you... Take me down the seat. So dad's on his own? Yes, there's no one there. Okay. He's COVID positive, so he, we don't know if he's positive. Well, no, well, he doesn't know if he's positive. You, got, you don't know he's positive, but all these people, I've just seen it myself. You've got my dad down, he's COVID positive. We've received a positive test, but you're saying he hasn't had it. So where's his test? That's the uncertainty. Well, where's the test? Right, well, you put down on his paperwork, he is in a ward, he's got, he's COVID positive, and now you're saying, well, we need to do a test to ascertain whether he is COVID positive. So why are you lying on his paperwork? Because you have told us. Yeah. Otherwise, we were continuing on the treatment as if he was COVID positive. And because because you put down COVID positive on his paperwork without any verification that he is COVID positive. Yeah. So you falsified his information on his paperwork. The only doubt that we've received that he could have been COVID positive. No, I'll tell you what, you don't even speak to me because three times you've told me he's done a test. When I'm on the phone to him saying, no, I have not. So you're just lying to me. So don't speak to me it's no more. Lying. So it's just not lying to me, yeah? we've been led to believe. Right, you're led to believe. He's blatantly lying to me. Three times he said, your dad's done a COVID test, he's done the swab, no he hasn't. Now he's saying he's coming up on an x-ray, so I'm not interested in what you... Well, truly astonishing and quite unpleasant scenes there in that hospital. And I've got to say, I've got huge sympathy for both sides of the argument that we're, we're actually seeing, because I know from personal experience what it is like when you have people inside the NHS lying over what has taken place and lying over medical documentation. And of course, many other people in UK have experienced that. But of course, the antagonism uh, between the, the gentleman trying to, see, uh, trying to see his father in the ward and the medical staff has been created by the government's deliberately confusing policy over how hospitals are to 
handle COVID. And so my, my uh, submission on this one is that this uh, very unpleasant altercation between the two sides has been deliberately created by the British government's behavioural insights team. And this is what is now actually taking place in the hospital. But interesting, Alex, the fact that uh, the gentleman in hospital had not been given a COVID test, that is what he said, and yet the hospital had labelled him COVID and that meant he couldn't have visitors. Indeed it is, Brian. And now I know people are going to be posting under uh, our uploads normally to YouTube, not today, of course, asking where's the link to this video. Well, if we had our normal YouTube access, you would just need to wait until the evening of the broadcast, a few hours after upload, and the links would all be there, courtesy of an excellent uh, assistance that we get. But since that's not the case today, the search phrase in a, in a browser to, or in a, in a search engine to look for is NHS court falsifying COVID paperwork. And we don't have dates, uh, dates, times, places, but this is clearly not falsified footage. It's far too authentic for that. So we cannot tell you what day or what hospital, uh, one in the south of England, presumably. Uh, the scruffiness and the sloppiness uh, really got to me here. Uh, it seems that the um, Northern Irish lady who was at least trying to respond was, uh, well, she's addressed towards the end of the clip as being responsible for the ward. So a senior nurse, at least she tries to speak uh, properly and responsibly, and but she is refusing to take ultimate responsibility uh, for what has been done there and the uh, the comeback that uh, this video has got it's, it's only posted on brand new tube by the way no no other video platform to my knowledge the comeback that a, that a gp has or some medical person has posted underneath is silly people we always check the bloods to get a COVID positive, but that completely ignores the point, of course, which is that uh, even though there may have been a blood test and a, and a chest X-ray, as described in the nine-minute clip, subsequent to this, which supposedly confirmed COVID positive status, the gentleman himself, who is not extremely elderly by the look of it and by the age of his son and daughter-in-law, but active retired maybe with uh, with a lung condition, COPD, he gets called up on his isolation ward and says, "I have not had a PCR test or a lateral flow test," and yet the notes say positive uh, as a result of test received, meaning a PCR or lateral flow. So there is a clear lie there. And in the past, of course, if you if you said to people, you are lying in the NHS, there would be the shirtiness. They would go through the rigmarole of saying, I take great offence and umbrage at that. But no, at this stage, okay, there's a, there's a politeness to the, to the senior sister I just described, but the others are standing around, often with tattoos, slouchy posture, uh, and basically saying the, the unspoken equivalent with their body language of what you're going to do about it. Yes. The whole thing very uh, unpleasant and I, I'll add for our audience that uh, yesterday we were taking testimonies from people who have elderly relatives who have died under appalling conditions within the NHS after they've been locked in wards uh, designated as COVID wards, uh, their relatives prevented from seeing them and ultimately those patients have clearly been put on end of care, uh, end of life uh, pathways not agreed by the family where the person concerned had ultimately suffered a horrific death. Um, really difficult even for us to uh, be able to report some of this stuff, but we are going to attempt to do it, to bring it out to our audience, to really show what is going on inside the NHS as a result of this vicious uh, uh, vaccine and COVID-19 policy from the government. Um, now, yesterday, everybody will have seen the video clip uh, of uh, uh, Rod, uh, the publican from the Raven pub in Bristol, uh, in an altercation with a thug, I guess we could call him, uh, certainly a heavy 
who was uh, one of the bodyguards for Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer had walked into this pub. I wasn't sure that people were allowed to walk into pubs at the moment. I thought they had to go into gardens. But anyway, uh, he went in. Uh, and Rod took offence and uh, demanded that Keir Starmer uh, leave the premises. Now, uh, the response from the pub was a bit strange. Uh, they pushed out uh, this tweet. Uh, please note, there's no intention by the Raven to hijack Keir Starmer's visit to Bath. Rod's opinion is his own. Uh, well, Rod got an unbelievable amount of support uh, on Twitter in the comments underneath this. Uh, Rod's opinion isn't his own. He speaks for millions of Brits who've become sickened by the opposition not being the opposition, but wanting sooner. Uh, and he goes on to say, career politicians like Starmer have destroyed hospitality, hospitality and our high streets. Cheers, Rod. Uh, another one said, I'm a local and I don't share Rod's Labour voting tendencies. However, he articulately expressed what many are thinking with regards to lockdown masks and the economy. Uh, well said, Rod. Uh, I don't think Starmer upset Rod with opinions is another comment. I think he had his livelihood threatened and uh, had seen many others being destroyed. Um, well, there was an, a particular section of the, uh, of the video that I wanted to just highlight. Now, the audio on this is uh, pretty poor. Uh, but uh, do listen carefully and we'll explain what happens afterwards. They've been on the front line for So I really don't need lectures from you about this pandemic. So Keir Starmer's attitude there was his wife has been working on the front line. He knows all about it and he doesn't need lectures from Rod or anyone else about this pandemic. Now, it seems to me, uh, Brian and Alex, that uh, uh, Keir Starmer's role as a politician is to listen to what people have to say. He might have a different position. He may have an argument to make about it. But to dismiss someone's concerns or someone's position in that way, he either just basically had no answer to it and decided he was just going to get aggressive. Uh, I think that could be the only explanation. Well, aggressive and, and huge arrogance, Mike, at the end of the day. This is the man that's provided no viable opposition to any policy that Boris's Conservatives have put through. He's hijacked the Labour Party. And when somebody tackles him on the street with real issues, or what does he come out with? I don't need to be lectured by you. It's, it's unbelievable arrogance, narcissism. Yes. OK, well, look, uh, let's move on to other topics now and censorship. And uh, well, we missed this story. Actually, it was announced uh, last month. This is the Aspen Institute. Maybe uh, Alex will have something to say about them in a second. Uh, but uh, they have set up the Aspen Institute Commission on Information Disorder. And they have announced uh, for the full membership list uh, and a planning roadmap. Um, and who is going to be taking part in this uh, Aspen Institute Commission on Information Disorder? Uh, none other than Prince Harry himself. Uh, so uh, we should be all very proud of that. Um, he is joining four other commission, 14 sorry, other commissioners and three co-chairs in conducting a six-month study on the state of the media. Uh, and uh, so that's going, going to include uh, people like a journalist, uh, Katie. Couric, uh, Color of Change president, a former director of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Uh, they're all co-chairs and so on. So, uh, Alex, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, but... Uh, uh, I, I is was he qualified? Well, first well, not, of all... Well, not he, Alex, but... <laughs> well, yes. Uh, yeah, I think Alex is qualified, but uh, is Prince Harry qualified? But 
this concept of information disorder, I mean, what do we say about that? It, the, the disorder there means we have lost control. And who's the we? Well, you look at the funders. The Aspen Institute was funded at that time at the end of the Second World War when so much globalism uh, took shape, 1949. And its original title was the Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies, which could be read in context at the time as uh, studies for how to break down the nation state and religion, because that's how humanism was increasingly being used in Britain and America uh, at, that, 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 at that time as a term. Uh, who funds the Aspen Institute? It's the full set of the tax-exempt foundations. It's Rockefeller, Ford, Gates, um, Carnegie, and several others. Uh, so Prince Harry is uh, sailing perilously close to being a political advocate here. I know he's no longer an active royal, uh, nor even in Britain, uh, but this is, this is somewhat questionable. The Aspen Institute is basically a, a created tame think tank so that the tax-exempt foundations can have some uh, light uh, academic cover. Uh, intellectual cover at least for the ideas they wish to push through. Yes, okay, so thank you for that. Now, if uh, you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support it, then your support is much needed as we will uh, discuss uh, on Friday probably. Uh, UKcolumn.org forward slash community is the place to go if you'd like to join us and that support would be very much appreciated. Uh, and also please share our material that you find on the uh, rapidly shrinking number of platforms that we have access that to. That we're allowed to broadcast <laughs> yes. on. I wonder why that is. Uh, well, okay, we'd like to say using this that we've we've got a lot more information from whistleblowers and other concerned professionals that have come to the UK column to tell us what they know about what's going on. We'll very shortly be releasing this, which is a psychotherapist who's doing a lot of work with uh, children, some of them from very disturbed backgrounds, who is is utterly terrified, as she said, as the, of the damage being done to the minds of children by the government's uh, lockdown policy and the use of applied behavioural psychology from the Behavioural Insights team. So a very big thank you to all the people who've had confidence to come to the UK column with their information. We just say we're doing our best to process this, but uh, we can only go as fast as we can. Now, we've had some emails in. This one here is about vac uh, vaccine patient information leaflets. The person said, I emailed you last Friday when I'd had a call from the NHS about giving my mother 91 a second Oxford jab. I asked first to see the patient information leaflet. The guy on the phone was puzzled and referred to his supervisor. I was then called by a second man who wanted to know why I wanted to see this document. I explained my concerns over blood clots, et cetera, as well as liability should something go wrong, and said I believed as holder of lasting power of attorney in all respects. I was entitled to see this. He then told me to ring a doctor, uh, but I pointed out, apologies and I missing there, pointed out that they wouldn't discuss this with me because of patient confidentiality. It was then suggested I travel to a vaccine center to see the document as they didn't have the facility to either post it out or email it to me. Since then, I've heard nothing. Now, what the NHS professionals who've been whistleblowing have been telling us that as the vaccine treatment has rolled out, the vaccines have been given, uh, patients are not being given the patient information leaflet, or they're, not being they're certainly not being given it in advance of the vaccine. They might be given it after they've had the vaccine, but of course that's too late because they can't make an informed decision. And here's the state of the NHS following that video clip. So thank you for the person who sent this in. Dear Brian, my girlfriend went to A&E at the George Elliott Hospital in Nuneaton to be seen about an open wound on her leg. 
Upon arrival, they told her she needs to wear a mask. She declined and informed them she was exempt. They said, you're not coming into this hospital without a mask. She then again told them she was exempt and even showed them her exempt card, but they told her to go away because they won't be letting her in to be seen. She was in excruciating pain and had an open wound that needed stitches and they turned her away. We came home and dialed 111. She explained to them what had just happened and they called the hospital to try and get her in for treatment. And the nurse at the George Elliott Hospital told 111 she's not allowed in without a mask. The operator for 111 was disgusted and logged a complaint about the incident. They claim it's hospital policy. We know otherwise the George Elliott is an utter disgrace in the way they treat patients. I can't wait until all the lies are out and these people face their first day of a life sentence in prison for their part of crimes against humanity uh, as ignorance and only taking orders is no defence. So there's no question here, Mike. We, we know that this is going on across the country, people being turned away from the NHS, denied treatment, sometimes because of mask issues, but very often because the NHS is simply not performing as a care system anymore. Mm. Uh, and Alex, uh, the, uh, the fundraiser that you were talking about in the last couple of programmes? We knew that this was going to be a headache, Mike, so we proceeded with caution. Uh, we, we fell at the last hurdle trying to get a fundraiser up for this lady, Mary, and her son, Mikey, who've gone to the continent in circumstances you can find out about by searching for that uh, blog on ukcolumn.org. Uh, I refuse to comply for the sake of my son. So we're now putting out an appeal. This is a particularly uh, sensitive judgment call, but we think this is the best way to proceed so that uh, Mary and Mikey's uh, goods can be uh, got to them on the continent as quickly as possible. And that is that we're seeking a volunteer uh, to host the fundraiser for Mary and Mikey. We think that the least bad and least objectionable mainstream donation site that's got least likely to do the dirty on the, the, the anyone is just giving. But the one thing they do require, which the previous volunteer couldn't fulfil, alas, uh, was that they require you to make your British current account available and be the named host on the page. So there is some visibility involved, to be quite frank. Uh, if we started sharing the page, it would say hosted by your real name, and that would have to agree with the British current account in your name. Uh, but if you are a trusted UK column viewer with the right heart, then that is the way forward so that those who've already spent hours moving Mary and Mikey's things around the flat in Dover can get them into storage, hopefully over on the continent in one go. Uh, and uh, how do they contact you, Alex? It's alex at ukcolumn.org. Okay, thank you very much for that. Now, uh, Green New Deal, of course, is uh, something which is being pushed very, very hard. It's going to be featured at the G7. The COP26 is happening in Glasgow later in the year. Uh, we all know uh, of the Great Reset and the work of the World Economic Forum to push this idea. Boris Johnson has Mark Carney as his uh, big advisor on these issues. Um, so the question is, what kind of world are we going to live in? Um, and, well, Chatham House wants to tell us. Uh, so here's the website. It's uh, futurescape.chathamhouse.org if anybody wants to go and see it. Uh, Futurescape is, let's just have a look at what they say. Futurescape is a Chatham House initiative for our second century. That's Chatham House's second century. Uh, generating innovative thinking and exploring how a more sustainable future could come about in the next 100 years around London's Piccadilly Circus. So they've chosen Piccadilly Circus as the example for this. Uh, they say the pandemic has catapulted ideas which lived largely in the imagination into near realities in many cities. It's becoming clear that a return to business as usual is, most un is not only unlikely, but also undesirable 
for some. Uh, and uh, so they say rebuilding the new normal and finding a way to f more sustainable future work requires reconfiguration uh, of some fundamentals at both a policy and individual level. And they talk about the importance of the cities uh, in doing this. A major civilization boundary was crossed in 2007 when more than half the world's population became urban rather than rural dwellers for the first time. And of course, this was as a result of uh, Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030 policy, which stated very clearly that this was what they wanted to see, people moving into the cities. And they say that there are many paths to the desired destinations, and so opportunities need to be shaped together. Um, so let's just have a look at uh, some of the things that they are uh, talking about here. They've got, it's a very animated website, and here's Piccadilly Circus. And the first thing that, that I noticed, and when I asked uh, Brian about it, it's the first thing he noticed, and I also asked our writer Ian Davis about it, and it's the first thing he noticed as well. There's almost nobody there. No Brian. people. No, no people. people. No people. So uh, uh, we're looking into the future. Uh, let's continue and see what, uh, what we're looking at here. Uh, first of all, we've got, uh, of course, the drones, uh, small autonomous vehicles and drones now share the space with pedestrians, bikes and scooters, so the roads are closed. Uh, it's just a walking space, lots of greenery, of course. Um, they go on uh, because, uh, of course, everything will be, uh, all the kiosks will be uh, solar powered. Uh, without roads dissecting it, the circus is now a large public space with colourful food market uh, that is famous for cutting edge meat alternatives and environmental foods. So we're already seeing uh, the new Green Deal idea, no more meat, uh, we've only got meat alternatives. Oh, that was experimental f foods on that one, Mike, yes. which are yeah, sinister. Yes, the area is now entirely closed to all road traffic. This has been the result of a continuous increase in restrictions on traffic flow around central London. Uh, and uh, it goes on to say uh, that uh, a new greener city uh, now, greener city Londoners are surrounded by more nature and open spaces, which improves their well-being, physical health, and efforts to protect the planet. Uh, so let's move on. Uh, they say that good, uh, good Deeds, a department store, only accepts care pounds, a government-certified cryptocurrency earned through social contributions and time spent on community projects. So this is the first block of time. Uh, that they're talking about, which takes us up to 2035, uh, 2021 to 2035. And Alex, what we can see quite clearly in that last uh, graphic there is we're talking about a certified cryptocurrency. Well, of course, the Bank of England and the Treasury working very hard to create the United Kingdom's uh, digital uh, cryptocurrency uh, through the Bank of England, but earned through social contributions and time spent on community projects. So it's absolutely clear here that uh, a social credit uh, scheme is on the way. This is certainly what Chatham House wants to see. And Chatham House, we shouldn't underestimate them for driving forward uh, much of the policy that we see through government. Yes, some of our viewers are quite quick to blame China in particular, and another category of viewers would say it's a Russo-Chinese plot uh, to unseat the West. But there's not many levels at which that analysis makes sense, because the Russian and Chinese central banks are, you know, to this day, very pro-Western and on board with the Western central bank's idea of um, a blockchain-based economy. For those who don't know, it's the idea of digitally tracing. Uh, how each unit is owned and spent so that you can never really spend anonymously, even if it appears to be so. As you took us through the Futurescape there, I noticed in passing that the kebab stall at Piccadilly Circus, now cleared of the underclass uh, plebs, proles and peons, um, was a kebab stall entitled um, In Vitro Kebab. 
with what looked very much to me like an image of a child's head at the top left. And I don't want to get all Pizzagate about it, but uh, OK, I can just about understand in vitro kebab as, as trying to tout the idea of lab grown meat uh, in, uh, in keeping with this whole crowd's idea that we'll never slaughter animals again. But really, a child's face and in vitro kebab? Uh, well, Alex, uh, you know, you make a good point here. I'm, I'm not sure how correct you are on the specific point, but actually when when people look at this website, you absolutely need to look at the detail of the graphics and the symbolism that's in much of it. But let's move on to uh, uh, post-2035. I think this is 2035 to 2055 or so. Uh, so traveling to the next stage. Uh, and of course, the first thing we see are the, the canals. Uh, because global warming uh, means that uh, London is going to change forever uh, and London is going to turn into a canal city. Um, so that's uh, something we've got to look forward to. And then, of course, we've got uh, the protein lab here. Uh, so what's the protein lab about? Well, they are talking about uh, the fact that we are going to get our protein from insects and insects are considered to be a delicacy. Now, of course, this is something that has been touted by the mainstream press quite a bit over the last uh, uh, number of couple of years, but uh, certainly Chatham House very keen to see that move forward. Uh, and then what do we have uh, here? Uh, so uh, we've got uh, consumerism is being transformed, a uh, circular economy. We want to exchange, we want to upgrade, we want to upcycle. We don't own anything anymore. Uh, we swap and we exchange and uh, uh, we borrow for a while. And then that takes us, uh, so that was 2035 to 2060, and that takes us to the next stop on the journey. And then it starts getting even more interesting because uh, in this 2090 they're talking about. Uh, now, what's interesting, I, they're talking about multicultural and creative. It's a new vibrant, Piccadilly Circus becomes vibrant, multicultural and, cre and, and uh, creative. Now, uh, if you look at the lady who's the, who the speech bubble is attached to, uh, well, she has uh, a dark complexion. If you look at the lady in the graph, in the image on the speech bubble itself, she is white. Uh, and so there is, they're clearly subliminally uh, getting people to think in terms of multiculturalism here. Uh, but let's uh, move on because where does that take us? Uh, well, that takes us to technology having transformed healthcare to make us more resilient to disease and viruses from implants uh, that monitor your health to genetically engineered uh, newborn babies. Uh, we are living longer, healthier lives. Uh, and so genetic engineered babies is something that they're very, very keen to see in the 2060 to 2090 timeframe. Uh, but it doesn't end there uh, because we move from the genetically engineered babies to the one world religion. And that religion is Earthism uh, and Piccadilly Circus Earthism Sanctuary is a pilgrimage site for followers of a new nature based religion called Earthism. And there's all kinds of symbolism in the, the background there. Just about every major current religion is represented by some of by something or other, uh, but it's been sort of converted into some uh, uber religion for everyone. Uh, Alex, what are your thoughts? Well, smack bang in the centre of that image, I spotted the Queen of Heaven, uh, but not in her Roman Catholic guise, but in her Babylonian guise. People might want to look up Semiramis as the origin of that religion. I think also this is something that Brian has looked into, uh, the idea of the book that, that comes to mind is False Dawn, uh, easily available as a PDF, uh, examining how 
existing bona fide New Age movements uh, were infiltrated, certainly in the 1970s, the idea of an Aquarian conspiracy, several other books of that age say the same thing, with a specific uh, aim of shall we say, turning New Age uh, thinking towards one world government thinking and particularly Luciferianism. So, uh, yes, there's, there's, there's unmistakable symbology in there. And uh, Alex, can we encourage people to go to the Chatham House site to actually see that graphic in action? Because it's very dark, it's very disturbing. But once you've seen it, then go and have a look at the people, see the pictures of the people and their names in Chatham House that are responsible for this. And of course, these are the people who are using their immense power to influence government into introducing the policies taking us down this road. Um, somebody in the chat box saying, is, uh, is this serious? Is it a joke? It, it, it is very serious. Uh, th this is certainly something that they are very seriously pursuing in, in that sense. Um, I think that we've got to always remember that we do create our own reality. So if we're looking to the future, and we're looking at what they are presenting as their idea of the future. Yeah. If you have a different view for what the future needs to be, then really, you know, we all need to be getting involved in building that future and, you know, countering this type of, of nonsense. Alex? Chatham House, a place I often visited as a GCHQ officer under Foreign Office cover, gave me the absolute creeps. Uh, it, it chilled me. And, uh, you know, if you look into the books, the best of them of all is, again, very, very easy, easily available as a PDF, the Anglo-American uh, establishment, I think it's called by Carol Quigley, he couldn't get it published for a long time. Uh, you will find the origins of that in the Rhodes-Milner conspiracy, the idea that a, a secular, godless Anglo-American clique would rule the world. And that steers our foreign policy, because to this day, people in the Foreign Office, the rest of Whitehall, the, the spy agencies are all told, this is the government think tank. Hell it is. It's a think tank that tells the government what to do. At this stage, you should realise that you're serving a Satanist foreign policy agenda if you do what Chatham House tells you to do. So if you're in service with the government, say no to them. You're actually required by the Queen and the taxpayer to set foreign policy for the people, not for that bunch of Satanists. Yes, OK, thank you for that. Now, Johnny Mercer, uh, he has resigned or he's been fired. The question is, which is it, Alex? If only we knew. Johnny Mercer, of course, a valiant veteran of Afghanistan himself. Uh, he was the junior minister at the Ministry of Defence until apparently a shouting match and a text message from the uh, chief whip last night. But it's been spun as him uh, regretfully resigning. Uh, his resignation statement, still pinned to his Twitter profile, says this. It's, of course, in the traditional British way, addressed to dear Prime Minister when you resign a ministerial position. So he tells Mr Johnson, I'm very proud of the small team in the Office for Veterans Affairs who have worked hard against a strong prevailing wind in government, he means ministers and civil servants, to get the UK government to realise her responsibilities to those who have served in the UK's armed forces. And he goes on. I had hoped that your premiership would signal a step change in veterans affairs in the UK. Of course, Mr Mercer is the first ever um, uh, minister with a remit and a team at the MOD covering veterans affairs in the way that America and many Commonwealth countries have had for decades. Just hold on one second, because he wasn't in the Ministry of Defence. He was actually based in the, in the Cabinet Office, right? So... So my, my question is, was there actually any other likely outcome, bear, bearing in mind that it, what, the way it seemed to me, at least, was that he had been brought in there to, to manage him because he had done some useful things in Defence Committee, for example. 
Oh yes, uh, he, he was definitely captured and, and brought on side. But this is very telling what you say, that he was not actually at the uh, the Ministry of Defence, but the Cabinet Office, the, the central apparatus in uh, number 70 Whitehall that tells the government departments and ministers what to do, certainly post Blair. Um, and there's, there's more on that in a moment. Mr Mercer says, whilst we continue to say the right things, uh, you'll see in a moment that a veteran gets a fob-off letter that's signed off, thank you for your service, and you, another new American-style empty habit that the government's picked up. He says, if we fail to match that with what we deliver, we risk damaging an already bruised veterans cohort further. And he tells Mr. Johnson that he warned him of this some time ago. But look at this. As I told you last month, that would be March 2021 in our first face to face meeting. Mr. Johnson and the junior minister responsible for veterans met just short of two years into Mr. Mercer's ministerial tenure. Uh, there was no meeting between the Prime Minister and that particular minister, admittedly a junior one, for nearly two years. And Mr Mercer continues, After signing the Veterans Pledge, which Mr Mercer championed, your team, so this again is the, 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 the Prime Minister and the Cabinet Office delivery people, not at the MOD, chose not to configure it in the way it was designed. The sticking point, as the mainstream press have reported overnight, is particularly that veterans of the uh, of Operation Banner, the Army's multi-generational or well, multi-decade um, peacekeeping operation in Northern Ireland, are specifically excluded from the bill now being drafted to protect troops from prosecution if they go on overseas operations outside the United Kingdom. And I think this is the last uh, slide quoting Mr Mercer's resignation speech. We have abandoned our people in a way I simply cannot reconcile. Veterans are being sectioned, that means committed to mental institutions, drinking themselves to death and dying well before their time, and he finishes that sentence, simply because the UK government cannot find the moral strength or courage we asked of them, the veterans, in bringing peace to Northern Ireland, in finding a political solution to stop these appalling injustices. So we have had a, a few things to say against Mr Mercer's approach in the past. Uh, you know, he's been accused of vanity and lightweightness in many ways, but he has fought lion-like for veterans. And I think he's realised, as, as sensible uh, retired military commentators were saying from a number of different angles in recent months, he was going to find in the end that he wasn't actually that important to COG and that he'd been co-opted. Yeah. Well, at least he's realised that and honestly thrown down the gauntlet. Uh, and Alex, I mean, the key point to make here is uh, the, the, uh, the, the lack of parity between military veterans uh, and the IRA, because the IRA under the Good Friday Agreement have immunity for prosecution from anything that took place uh, under the Troubles. If they haven't been caught and prosecuted already, they're not going to be. Uh, but the veterans still continue to be pursued. Um, so veterans are simply asking for parity uh, either way. Uh, and Mercer was supporting them in that, in that effort. But uh, that's, that's the basis of this, the, the rank unfairness of the situation between the two sides. It is a specific conscious decision, largely by civil servants and private contractors, I think, uh, for at least 15 years now, uh, perhaps even since the Blair Revolution, but now coming to a head under, uh, ironically, a Conservative government. And that decision is that veterans of the Northern Ireland's uh, peacekeeping operations are the lowest of the low. They don't deserve to be on a par with other veterans, let alone with terrorists who killed them in many hideous ways, which just to look at one example, uh, David Scott's uh, Twitter account, Albion underscore Rover, he often retweets uh, uh, from an account called On This Day the IRA. Uh, put prejudice aside and find out what the IRA did, particularly to our squaddies.
in Northern Ireland, the, the hideous deaths they died. And uh, now they're getting a knock on the door by uh, privately hired prosecution teams, or at least were, Mr Mercer was trying to bring an end to it, on behalf of the Ministry of Defence, often when they're in their 80s. And these things happened in the 1970s, half a century ago. Yeah, Alex, if I may, just to add a little bit, little bit more. Uh, I think we did see that Johnny Mercer was very lightweight when he first got into politics. I th think he thought he'd become part of the, the old boys club and he was in with the movers and shakers. And of course, now he's discovered that, as you've said, he simply not regarded. Um, but it'd be very interesting to see what he does, whether he now goes quiet or whether he actually has the courage to stand up and do the real job to protect and defend those veterans. It's going to be very interesting to see. Um, so where well, does this that... will give us a hint. Sorry, Alex, go ahead. Yes, the, 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 the case we're about to feature will give us a hint of exactly that question, really. Uh, Trooper Craig Bullman is a retired para from the 2nd uh, Battalion Parachute Regiment, and he was also then in the Red Devils Freefall team and then got into the Household Cavalry, so the very impressive mounted soldiers that you see around the uh, Royal Sites in London. Uh, Craig Bullman has taken on a tireless campaign in recent years for a particular kind of persecuted veteran, this time not being persecuted through the lawfare uh, of uh, supposed unlawful killings in Northern Ireland, but those being persecuted through another kind of lawfare, which is child support payments. The CSA, the Child Support Agency, of course, um, became the Child Maintenance Service in 2012 due to many scandals involving civilian men being targeted. Mr Bullman was writing even back in February, it is very clear that the Child Support Agency, now called Child Maintenance Service, is a threat to national security. We have data to support that they are the cause of around a thousand suicides per year. These are, of course, the men that don't count in, 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 uh, in, in today's society, at least to the, to the movers and shakers, not all of them military, but a good slice of them are. I'll never forget being on a park bench in Cheltenham around 2006 and sitting next to one of these men who was quite, as, as Mr Mercer says, drinking himself to death over being, not being able to see his children and being pursued for payments. And it's been ignored for a long time, but well done to Craig Bullman for, for, for persisting with this campaign. Uh, he highlights in particular the case of a man who tragically killed himself last summer, Gavin Briggs, uh, aged 40. So you can look at this uh, YouTube video to find the details of that, Justice for Veteran Gavin Briggs and the Child Maintenance Service on the Meth Talks Vet uh, channel. There is also a campaign homepage for him on the next slide, Justice for Gavin Briggs, easily found. And just look at the headings there to show how many stages of unlawfulness Mr Briggs went through in being hounded for uh, payments that he didn't owe. Uh, I mean, this, this does start to look like a bit of a racketeering operation with parallels in how things are done in America to both civilian and military men being chased for payments that uh, are jolly well known to be fraudulently uh, claimed. Uh, so here's the um, something else that uh, has been shared uh, by Craig Bullman, the uh, memorial service leaflet for the life of uh, uh, Gavin John Briggs. And look what he uh, has coupled with that. Uh, if you look at, click on that, the veteran Gavin Briggs, murdered by the child maintenance service and the failure of ministers holding the child man uh, maintenance service to account for fraud, corruption and malfeasance in public office, very much Brian Gerrish language, when they had been made aware of wrongdoing by thousands of members of the public many times. And another Brian Gerrish technique, he brings the names to the faces. So we can see here that these uh, largely junior ministers uh, and other members of parliament responsible for defence policy, these public servants are fully aware, uh, this is now uh, Craig Bullman's words, of the illegal operations of the Child Maintenance Service, previously Child Support Agency, 
but have chosen to turn a blind eye to the fraud and corruption. They are accountable for the suicides caused by the CSA, now CMS, corporate manslaughter. Uh, let's go on and find out more about what Mr. Bullman has written here. Uh, we're short of time, I know, but this, this is really of importance. He wrote to Jamie Stone after Mr. Stone raised this in a committee of Parliament last year, saying, Dear Jamie, uh, my correspondence with you is of national interest. Gavin, that's Gavin Briggs from the previous slide, was a veteran of 15 years of service with the Royal Air Force. He goes on, very sadly, Gavin took his life in early July 2020 due to the distress the child maintenance service was causing him over £15,000 worth of fictitious arrears and inflated income, deliberately overestimating his income, of £26,000. Classic techniques for a shakedown, wouldn't you say? As a result of the footage of you speaking about the child support agency that I uploaded to YouTube, I, Craig Bullman, was contacted by members of our special forces. This is where we see the node of the brand destruction of the military, uh, just uh, very much as, as seen with the Northern Ireland prosecutions. They, says Mr Bullman, have informed me that there is a big problem at Hereford, base of the SAS, and Poole, base of the SBS, with the Child Support Agency or Child Maintenance Service. And in fact, he says, they fear, this is our hardest men, they fear the Child Maintenance Service more than going on operational tours. Some have been reduced to tears by the CSA, now CMS. Now, uh, at least Brian and I have been up close and personal with these Special Forces men. And I think you would agree with me, Brian, it really does take a lot to move them to tears, actually. I mean, they, they, these are men you wouldn't really want to spend too much uh, uh, time with if, 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 if they were upset about anything. But they, they, they really... Uh, you know, they, they manage to discipline and keep themselves under control uh, when they're facing an enemy with a gun. But this is something that reduces them to tears more than that. That, that really is quite something, isn't it? Well, a large part of that, Alex, is, is the use of uh, psychology to attack these men. And uh, it's very clear that this is the way it's done. So there's the cruelty that they're not able to see their children. And then there's the fact that the paperwork that comes through to them is full of lies and also that the process goes on over months and years. And that is what ultimately does the damage. So yes, in the early days when we had individuals coming to the UK column, I was, I was stunned to see very hard men, parachute regiment, or yes, some of them were special forces talking about the state they were in as a result of, of attacks by these child support agencies, malicious applied psychology. That is how the damage has been done. And I'm also going to say we had members of, of, of from the army, but also from uh, Royal Marines Parachute Regiment coming to us, telling us that when they were under treatment from uh, um, military psychologists and psychiatrists, they were actually told by those professionals to commit suicide. That sounds a remarkable thing to claim, but men came from us, came to us from different regiments, different parts of the country. And they said that in so-called counselling sessions, they were told, well, you might as well go and commit suicide. And we were also informed of many still serving veterans, uh, principally from uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, who, who were put on amazingly heavy doses of uh, psychotropic uh, medicine on the claim that this was a prophylactic application of medicine to make sure that they didn't get PTSD. And some of the perfectly healthy serving men talked about seeing colleagues who'd sustained just light wounds or injuries. Uh, some of that non-combat related vehicle accidents, for example, they'd seen them as healthy, happy, laughing and joking on the trooping flights back from Iraq or Afghanistan. But when they'd seen them 
several months later, the men were in an appalling state of mental decline. And that decline had been facilitated within the so-called care system of the military. So these are all the real questions that people, such as um, people we've been talking about, Johnny Mercer. Uh, this is what Johnny Mercer should really be investigating. But of course, we see too often that the MPs simply shy away from these very difficult areas. Indeed so. So let's round off what uh, Craig uh, Bullman says about this. He says in his first letter to the Member of Parliament who raised this at one point, it's very distressing to see that the child maintenance service is causing such distress to members of our special forces and the government know this is happening and are doing nothing about it. He adds, this is clearly a threat to our national security, given the role our special forces play in the defence of the United Kingdom. I'm also aware that members of MI5 and MI6 are affected by the child maintenance service. Our armed forces lives are being put at risk. When you are being hounded, this is what Brian just described by the CSA and LCMS, you are unable to function properly. It doesn't matter how well trained and, 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 uh, and tough you are, you really will break down at this point, as you and I have both testified to testify to having seen these men. Retired Royal Air Force Colonel Graham House, founder, founder of Justice for Troops, informed me, Greg Bullman, that he had had to cancel an operational sortie due to his navigator not being able to function. A bit worried. He adds, that could have resulted in fatalities of our ground forces. The United Kingdom's defences against terrorism are being compromised and the government are allowing it to happen. Uh, Alex, I'd just interject that the government are not allowing it to happen. The government are part of the body which is implementing these techniques. They are complicit in it, it's calculated. As somebody's also said, well, it's sort of, these are mistakes within social services. No, what we're talking about in these cases is calculated application of, of breaking the law and and psychological bullying in order to get the effect. The government is complicit in it. They are not sitting on the sidelines unaware. Well, let's see proof of that, because uh, in March, in an undated letter, just given as the month of March, the Ministry of Defence replied on behalf uh, of this uh, uh, Member of Parliament who was written to, uh, and I think he copied in Mr Mercer by the look of it, and Anonymous replied, as you were previously advised, the MOD, like other employers, so they're reducing it immediately to the level of, sorry, statutory obligation, we're just another employer, we're subject to the requirement to deduct pay, so garnishment of wages, on behalf of, here it comes, the Department for Work and Pensions, so they, they tell the MOD what to do now uh, with regards to our elite soldiers, if required by the DWP Child Maintenance Group, can't help. Uh, is the next sentence, basically. I regret we, these are not matters in which the MOD can intervene or offer any remedy. Uh, this is signed off. The Child Maintenance Service uh, administers the scheme and is part of the DWP, so you, so that's uh, obviously the campaigner in question, but equally our viewers might like to write to the address on screen to tell them politely and lawfully what you think of this supposed uh, ability to hound uh, soldiers to suicide. And then the sign-off itself simply says, sorry, not a very nice thing to have to send. Thank you for your service. You're sincerely an anonymous person. Uh, something, a habit that we've seen quite repeatedly recently. So Mr. Bullman wasn't put off. He replied with copies this time to various uh, other agent uh, ministers. The, the senior MOD minister himself, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, former Intelligence Corps of the Army, of course, and Johnny Mercer, former Army as well. Dear Ben and Johnny, I've received yet another disappointing response. It makes me wonder whose side you are on, says Mr. Bullman. 
Your refusal to investigate is another scandal. This problem is so easy to remedy. The child maintenance service is causing retention issues. Men are being dissuaded from joining up, which of course is the point of the policy, it would be argued by some. Why would you not want to protect the members of our armed forces and veterans from illegal actions of the child maintenance service, especially when they are causing so much harm? I just cannot believe our elected representatives who are responsible for our national security show such a lack of interest, especially when members of our armed forces are being put in harm's way. I have been going on about this for many years now, which has fallen on deaf ears. It is a blatant case of omerta. Now, I think we'll put the rest of our defence coverage in extra time, given the shortage of time, but we are going to go on for our subscribers to talk more in more detail about defence matters from Britain, the Netherlands and the United States uh, on, on very much this matter of deliberate choking of funds and deliberate hounding of people out of the service and out of health. Uh, but just that last word he chooses to use there, Craig Bullman says it's a case of omerta. Of course, you'll be both aware, gentlemen, omerta is the mafia code of silence. And if you look at some of the commentators in North America who look at similar uh, child main maintenance persecution issues, I'm thinking particularly of David Hawkins, they are pretty convinced now that there is a deliberate mafia shakedown uh, going on with uh, setting up uh, men to fail with child maintenance payments, that it is not just runaway third wave feminism saying uh, Yabu sucks, fathers are always guilty, pay through the nose. It's actually deliberately garnishing the wages of men beyond their earning capacity and beyond the, what the courts have ordered to be paid to the mother and child. Uh, so it, it's not just uh, a target the military strategy or, or clear, out, clear dangerous veterans out of the way strategy or military unification for Europe and North America strategy. It seems also to be a general mafia racket. Yes, and the two go hand in in glove, uh, uh, Alex, because you have the political agenda and breakdown of society and the institutions. Somebody asked, why are they targeting these men? They're targeting them because the aim is utter breakdown of the military in the same way that we're seeing breakdown in the police. Uh, police can't function, or if they do, they're acting like thugs. Breakdown in the NHS, breakdown in the school system. This breakdown is calculated, it's engineered, and the deep government is fully involved in it. There's no question of it because all of the all of the individual pieces fit down, fit together in, in, in a jigsaw. And the picture you form is the agenda is to break down the nation state. I think we're out of time. I think we should, although it's a shame because I think we could discuss a lot more detail. Mm. We'll thank our viewers and listeners very much for joining us. I'm going to say that Friday's UK column news will be a very special news because we have some important things to say to our longtime supporters and to our viewers. And we're going to encourage as many of you as possible to tune in to that special edition. And uh, we are going to be moving on from here, very much looking for um, participation. participation and support from anybody and everybody who has been tuning into UK column broadcast. So a special recognition to people that have become full-time supporters and are helping us survive. Uh, but also we're going to be looking at those previously YouTube viewers uh, who've been following as many as a, nearly 100,000 of them. Um, we have a message for you all on Friday. So please join us. Um, we'll be back in 10 minutes as usual for some extra on the UK column uh, live stream. Uh, and, uh, well, I believe on Friday we'll be back on YouTube as well. Uh, possibly. 
We, we'll see how long we stay for. We're probably for only for one day, but we'll see. We'll see how we do. Uh, so see you in ten minutes, and uh, otherwise on Friday. Bye bye. Bye bye.